Very good evening, all. Um, welcome to the LSE for those who are not normally here. I'm glad to see you if you are normally here. Uh, my name is Tony Travers uh, from LSE London and the Government Department, and I'm uh, chairing this, even, this evening's Urban Age event. The Urban Age is a major program uh, run through and in the LSE with support from the Harehausen Foundation, and you'll see outside a pile of books uh, that are the uh, biggest physical fruit of this uh, epic enterprise, which has been going on for some time. However, the purpose of this evening is to hear about transport in London uh, from the person who more than any will know, and that is the City's Transport Commissioner, Peter Hendy. Peter has a distinguished past in the, oh, sorry, a distinguished past and present in <laughs> transport in Britain. <laughs> Trying to in give a flavour. Sorry, sorry, well, Peter. Um, Peter, um, in a sense, has worked at all levels of the transport industry as well in his career. Um, can actually drive a bus. I'm sure there aren't many transport commissioners in the world of whom that is true. Uh, has owned a bus company and is now a public servant originally appointed by uh, the previous mayor, Ken Livingston, and now uh, working with the current mayor, Boris Johnson. And the mayor and Transport for London, whose Commissioner Peter is, have recently published a new transport policy document called Way to Go, worth a read. It's full of the mayor's own uh, linguistic uh, facilities. It's fascinating to read it compared with the ones we used to see. And um, Peter is going to talk about not just that, but the wider question and issue of transport in London. And of course, for any of you who, who live here, and most of us do, uh, there's no question that London has one of the most developed railway and probably the most developed bus systems of any uh, city in the world. And on a good day, it's uh, the best system in the world. Sometimes it's not so good, but there are major reinvestments going on, and I'm sure we'll hear about those as well, and particularly about the funding of major new projects. So, ladies and gentlemen, can I welcome uh, Peter Hendy, Transport Commissioner. So now, um, thank you for that nice introduction, Tony. Um, much to some of my critics um, disgust, I am still here, so I'm not in the past tense. Um, and uh, in case you worried why it started late, it was because I was uh, nearly late, but I just got here in time because the traffic in this city is hard. Um, it, it is nice to be here. It repays uh, at least one sort of debt from uh, Ricky because I was privileged to go to the Urban Age Conference in Berlin uh, a couple of years ago, which... Uh, was very stimulating and, and greatly enjoyable, and it's nice to be able to put a, back in, put a bit back into that process, even if one of the uh, difficulties of a job like this is you'd like to go around the rest of the world and look and advise other people, but actually there's quite enough to do here, so people don't let you. Um, and uh, Tony said uh, about all the wonderful things I've done, it did in my past. When I asked Ricky where the gents was here, of course, actually, I knew where it was because when I was a conductor on the 11 in 1976, um, <laughs> where you went for a pee at this end of the route, uh, was in the toilets at the London School of Economics. And I'm happy to say they look exactly the same now as they did then. Um, and, uh, everything does. Uh, everything does. So. Right. Uh, the story of... London, the city of London since the 1830s is a product of successive transport revolutions 
That London was able to grow at all was the product of the railway. Growth followed the railway boom and then the tramway system and then the underground. Buses enabled low-density suburbs to spread out from stations and all of that made possible the growth and dominance of London as an economic machine. Tonight I'm going to talk to you about a bit of history, about transport policy since the creation of the mayoralty, about the impact of the new mayor and the transport challenges facing us and how we're managing them. I'm hoping to get through that expeditiously. I'll answer questions at the end. I've got to go literally just before eight, if only because I only get about two times a year when I speak to the mayor on my own, and tonight is one of them. I'm not telling you where I'm going either, um, <laughs> but whoever's in the restaurant finds him anyway, so... <laughs> Uh, it's always an interesting evening. Um, a bit of lip service to the title at first. I discovered a long time ago, you can say whatever you like in these lectures as long as you say a bit about the title before you move on. But, but actually the title is very apposite because transport and transport provision in a world city is innately political. Mobility defines the growth and the nature of city life. And, and, and in fact in London the structures by which transport has been delivered have been defined by politics since the start of the railway age. The parliamentary process that decided which lines got built, legislation requiring cheap trains, similar political arguments on tramway development, where, the, where you could build them, where you couldn't, and, how, uh, and the cheap fares policies of the municipal tramways, political action to stop unrestrained bus competition in the 1920s, the formation of the London Passenger Transport Board as a state, uh, well, a public organisation like the BBC in 1933. Politics transformed it to a nationalised industry in 1948. Um, the politics, and they were real politics, of urban motorways in the 60s and 70s. Municipalisation of London transport in 1970. Nationalisation by the Thatcher government in 1984. And the more recent creation of a mayor and TfL in the 1999 GLA Act all essentially political moves in a, in a, in a, in a, fun, in a provision of a, a function for the city. Um, I've got some nice pictures. Whether they relate to the slides is an interesting question, but um, you can enjoy watching them if you think I get boring. Um, so this is entitled What's Worked, and I, I would argue to start with that the creation of the mayoralty, which, um, as, as Tony knows and can lecture on better than I do is a unique and unusual sole political position in UK politics of immense personal power has also created a new era um, and I'd say a successful one for, for transport in London um, I run an integrated transport authority which is not merely the old London transport, the tube and buses, but a whole range of other stuff, the major strategic road network, responsibility for walking and cycling, um, elements of national rail which we'll talk about, licensing taxis and private hire vehicles, the first substantial change to that regime for about 300 years, um, ticketing, tra travel information, strategic transport planning. It's actually one of the most comprehensive authorities in the world world, um, where, whichever sort of city you look at, and actually far more so than either the arrangements, for example, in Paris or New York, neither of which really is under the control of the mayor, and, 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 and both of which omit to connect roads, for example, with the provision of public transport. The mayor appoints the board of TfL, according to the Act, and rightly, in my view, both mayors have chosen to chair it. The Mayor is required to publish a Mayor's Transport Strategy to set out what they propose to do alongside the London Plan and the other statutory plans. 
Um, and, and basically it works, the Mayor decides and we deliver, and explicitly on fares, I must have to explain that about once a week, which is that I don't decide fares policy, in the Act the Mayor decides fares policy. Funding apart from that, however, and a great weakness of the UK Government in general, is that apart from fares and the policy of charging, um, actually the rest of our funding comes from the uh, National Government, um, and that, to that extent is not devolved. Now, transport, in essence, is regional. Uh, Greater London is a region, uh, and actually it's a really good place to decide what to do about transport and transport provision. At a borough level, routes, roads and lines cross political boundaries willy-nilly. There's not a bus route in London that only operates in one borough of London. They all cover two and sometimes three and four. Similarly with the strategic road network um, and, and, of course, with railways. And if you deal with transport in this region, in this great city region at a national level, as opposed to a borough level, you can quite easily see it's too small at a borough level, at least in strategic terms. If you deal with it at a national level, actually all you've got is a problem. London's transport at a national political level has always been a problem. It's a bloody great cost, and you don't have sufficient MPs to get the cost through Parliament. And that's the, been the history of it every time we've been a nationalised industry which is that um, you can have a, a very strong debate about the future of rural railways and about a third of the House of Commons will turn up. If every London MP turns up to look at our budget, you're quite easily outvoted by the rest of, the rest of, 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 of Britain. One of the most obvious outcomes of the influence of the Mayor has been a really successful policy to promote and invest in public transport because it's the Mayor's biggest responsibility in financial terms and because it's the biggest lever that the Mayor has in these circumstances in economic and social improvement in the London region. So as a result, um, Ken was a high-profile Mayor, just as the Boris now is, um, supported, and su supported by and supporting London business. We got a groundbreaking five-year financial settlement from government in 2005. It's actually the largest ever settlement, both in time and in money, because even the New Works programme, which Tony wrote about in the Standard today, was it yesterday, of 1935 to 1940, was in fact curtailed by the Second World War. So allowing for the unlikelihood of another, Second World, uh, another World War by 2010, we will have completed a five-year investment programme, the first one in the history of London's transport. And now we've got another one, which is worth £39 billion of grant and borrowing from government from the period 2010 to 2017, with an overall budget of some £80 billion, a huge project, some of which I'll talk about, um, and, and, and actually still not enough, but far more than anybody's ever seen in my working memory, uh, and, uh, in my working life and in, in living memory, and primarily because actually the Mayor is powerful and he represents a powerful region and he can make regional arguments about the impact of the region on the national economy. Um, Tony talked about Way to Go. Here is a copy of it in print. Um, it is a good read. Um, it is written by the Mayor. It's not written by the Mayor's staff or the Mayor's advisors or the Transport for London. It's written by the Mayor, and I do recommend you read it. I hope that you'll see influences of this in here, especially if you're going to go and tell him whether I, what I said in, in at all related to his policies. Um, but you will see something about it in here because, obviously, I've carefully um, read it, as you would expect me to. Um, here's some more pictures about things which have worked. Um, if you read the foreword to Way to Go, 
It's actually very complimentary about the previous mayor's uh, uh, transport policies and achievements. And he starts about saying, get on a London bus and look around. The bus will probably be clean. It will be new or newish. It will have disabled access and it will have CCTV. And indeed, not only is that very generous praise from some other part of the political spectrum from where Ken came from, but it's actually very generous praise for um, at least some of the elements of a coherent transport policy because actually we've reversed the decline in ridership on the bus network in London. It's the highest ridership for nearly 50 years. It works better than it's done ever since uh, I've been around. Um, and actually it's a good short-term way of coping with London's phenomenal growth. It's quite expensive um, and uh, I, the only mitigation I'd say is that that's as much due or more due actually to the previous Mayor's fares policies than it is due to high costs of which there are clearly some. If you travel on that bus you'll have boarded using an Oyster card. Um, nearly everybody does. It's, that's been a success story too. That's an integrated success story. When people talk about integrated transport I think it's one of the things they mean which is one means of paying for the journey however you take it and that's been a success too. And you might have used the integrated journey planner on the web and we hope that's a success too. You might also have travelled on the overground. Given the strident and continuous opposition of the previous mayor and indeed my predecessor to the PPP for the underground, slightly surprising that actually TfL was given control by the government of what was the North London line, partially because it was a wreck, um, but actually probably more sensibly because it, it, it actually appealed to uh, government as part of a, a joined up strategy and we'd proved by then that we could, even in difficult circumstances, deliver things. And if you have time, go and look at those grim old stations on the North London line and see what we've done. They're bright, they've got signs, they've got staff there from the time they open to the time they close and the trains are heaving as a consequence. It's a remarkable success. Those measures, others, the congestion charge, the promotion of cycling, which has got up nearly 100%, have added up, I think you can reasonably argue, and the Mayor gives me, uh, gives me credibility for saying so in the first few pages of this document, to a reasonably coherent attempt to get people onto public transport, out of cars, to walk and cycle. And indeed we've had a 5% modal shift from the car to public transport, walking and cycling, which is on a scale not matched by any other city in the world over this period. Um, and Boris has been generous in his praise to the previous policies and indeed has said that he would like to achieve more. So, if we start to look forward, um, the principal challenge in London, unlike my uh, first 20 years in the transport industry here, is that London is, is growing. The population is projected to increase. Um, it's, it's going up um, by uh, uh, 70 or 80,000 uh, a year. It shows no signs of stopping. And if you and if it grows at that rate to 2025, we'll add a city the size of Amsterdam onto, the, uh, on, onto what, what's in London already. Job numbers, despite the recent economic turbulence, are also expected to grow. And whilst the new mayor's strategy, which those of you who came to listen to Simon Milton uh, a month ago will have heard, is more about developing suburban centres in London, um, whilst that new strategy we will, of course, take account of, actually employment growth is still likely to be concentrated in the blue areas on the left of this slide, whereas the population and housing growth will be much more evenly spread across Greater London, and as a result you can see clearly that there's, uh, there's sound evidence for suggesting that there will be an increase in, a significant increase in the demand for travel. Uh, our view is by nearly 4 million journeys a day, 
um, and actually increasing demand for every sort of transport, public transport, car use. Hopefully we can mitigate it as, we talk, as I'll talk about while walking and cycling. And our view is that if you don't do something about that, then actually what you do is, is, is stunt the city's growth economically. The worst of all worlds is that the people still come, but you can't move them anywhere and you can't find them work. And, that's, and that turns out then to be a social uh, uh, crisis of considerable proportions. Um, there are, of course, real land use considerations because you don't start from something like Canberra or Brasilia. This city is several centuries old. We start from where we are. And indeed, actually, having told you that the development of the city is inextricably, inextricably bound up with the transport networks, of course, actually, the, 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 those networks over, the, over their development have influenced uh, pe where people live, where people work. We still attempt to serve it, but actually, once you know that the Northern Line will take you from Finchley to the City of London, it becomes apparent that people move to Finchley because they can work in the City of London and so forth. Um, clearly, the best option is to reduce the distance between where people live, work, and take their leisure. Um, but actually, in a city this size, with the sort of densities that you can see in outer London, and with the specialist clusters of activities like finance and business services in the city and Canary Wharf, that's clearly not always possible. So we have to take account of the urban landscape, and we also have to take account of, of developing policy so that if the mayor wants to develop some suburban centres, we've got to find a way of moving between suburban centres more easily. Uh, the, mayor is, the new mayor is determined to do more in orbital travel, and we'll have to reflect that. Um, and actually, all of that is done best when you think about land use alongside transport. And it's quite hard to say which, which, which came first. And I'll talk to you about a very exciting development in our view about the way in which we go forward with the London Plan and the Mayor's Transport Strategy, because actually the last time around, the first time around, the Mayor's Transport Strategy was written long before the London Plan was produced. And that may well be not the right way around to, to do it. Um, at the heart of a thriving city is its economic success. We are, in, a, in a phrases I use in lots of speeches to lots of places, we are the powerhouse of the national economy. The productivity of people who work in, uh, in London is 20% higher than the rest of the country. It is the place where people put international headquarters. They don't choose between London and Northampton. They choose between London, Paris and New York, um, whatever you say if you have a regional bias. And we have the headquarters of more than a fifth of Europe's 500 largest company, companies. And transport is actually a central factor in that because you can facilitate agglomeration by mass transport and effective mass transport. And actually, as ever, the Mayor in this recession is supported strongly by business and supported um, apparently by politicians of every political colour. It's clear, though, that although money is tight and although we're maybe in a recession and mine heading towards one, actually continued investment in transport to enable the city to grow is absolutely essential. I think the defining work on that as far as I'm concerned certainly is the work that Eddington did uh, nearly two years ago, both, both for the Chancellor and the Secretary of State for Transport in 
defining what, where best to put your money to facilitate economic growth in Britain and actually what he in essence said was London's a good place to do it because the marginal benefit of it is far greater than it is anywhere else and he supported Crossrail. And the Isle of Dogs, if you look at these pictures, the Isle of Dogs is a really good example of that because the one on the left is before you started. Um, would the Isle of Dogs develop, have developed without mass transit at all? The answer is no. It got the DLR which was about the cheapest and, uh, and, and most toy town thing you could have given it um, and actually ever since it's been, been continuously rebuilt and expanded because actually to get the sort of densities that you can see on the right you need effective mass transit, you needed a DLR and then you needed a Jubilee line extension and I can't now remember whether that picture is after Crossrail, I think it probably is um, yeah. but you need Crossrail as, as well and, and, and you can you, you can make that case pretty easily and I don't suppose anybody would really uh, argue about it. The only problem with agglomeration is that you, you get greater economic growth but the congestion that can go along with it can equally cripple it and I'll have some things to say about that as well. And it isn't just of course about big business because on the back of big business there are thousands and thousands of small businesses and actually one of the reasons for keeping big business going in London is to keep the money going so that small business can thrive as well. Um, the different side of this is about, is about uh, social inclusion and the development of the community and I feel quite confident in talking about this because actually much to the surprise of many Boris has been as, as keen on, on continuing some of these moves as, as, as the previous mayor was and actually we have in this city some shockingly deprived areas people I think outside London assume that it's full of wealth but actually the darker you get in this map the more deprived the wards are uh, and, it, and, and, and actually transport is one of the ways in which you can break into um, a, the spiral of deprivation, the inability to access education, health and employment and actually we know it does we know it does by various measures because we know for example if you put on orbital night bus routes every time you do it you get a trickle of letters from people who write to you saying I can get a job as a cleaner at the airport now and I couldn't do it before. It's really interesting it does actually make a difference and we know that that we know that that happens and clearly actually one of the things that you do with planning transport as part of a coherent city strategy is to make sure that you enhance uh, social inclusion uh, as, much as, you, as much as you can. Um, no presentation of this sort, certainly not dealing with my subject, would be complete without reflecting on uh, CO2. Relatively, this city is quite carbon efficient. It's better than Rome and New York, and that's quite a surprise given its relatively low density. But actually, the new mayor's reaffirmation of the old mayor's commitment to a 60% reduction in CO2 emissions means that actually we have to move a lot harder and further than we have so far done. Uh, and actually, I'll talk about that in a bit. But the other thing we've got to do in the meantime is to also contemplate on, our, on, the, on the daily work that we do the, uh, the, the impacts of climate change. Thirty years ago, nobody built a bus garage in London without putting all the buses under cover because it snowed. Now what we're worried about is block drains on the strategic road network because every time it rains hard, um, you get a picture like that one on the left. Um, and I can tell you all the places it happens to and so can that bloke sitting in the front row um, so uh, let's move on from that and talk about where the new mayor and the new mayor's strategy might, might take us here, here are some headings um, I'm going to deal with them in a slightly different order which is the penalty of having the slides done before you've written, written a script but you'll, we'll get there um, we 
have to address all of these things as well as running the system on a daily basis. I won't say much about that, but actually one of, it, it, it's, both a, it, it's both a delight, a constant concern, and a very clear reminder that actually people expect us not only to contribute to long-term policy, but actually get you all home. You're, you've come here because you're interested in policy, hopefully, a bit of history, a bit of politics, a bit of policy. But actually, if I don't take you home, you're livid. And, and it's quite interesting to reflect on this in this sort of lecture because I could equally have spoken for at least 45 minutes about the challenges of operating the network. It's not what you want to hear about and it's not glamorous. But just bear in mind as you ask why we're not pursuing some of these more ha harder, more strongly and with more effort, that there's a huge amount of effort just going into turning the handle on a system that's very, very old. If the Metropolitan Line, or the Hampstead and City Line rather, between Baker Street and Farringdon were on the surface, the whole thing would be a Grade 1 listed building because it was built in 1863 rather badly. Because it's underground, it's a maintenance nightmare. Just remember that. Um, I'll deal with all of that. The only thing that I want to say now, uh, lest anybody forgets, is that we also have this um, uh, number nine, the value for money issue. Boris was elected on uh, some different platforms as well as some of the same platforms as Ken, and one of the things he was elected on was taxpayer value. So as well as doing everything on this slide, which I'll talk about, as well as operating the system on a daily basis, I'm also charged with making significant economies, bearing down on costs, and actually changing the organisation philosophically from one that spent eight years consistently growing. Um, I do uh, lie awake at night about it because actually it's quite a challenge. I think it's the right thing to challenge uh, uh, public uh, organisations with budgets of seven billion, um, but that's not easy either, and I don't want it forgotten in this, um, in, in, in the rest of what I've got to say. Well, the first thing is, and I talked about it a bit anyway, connecting transport and planning, not merely strategic planning across London, but also more local planning. We, we have to work in partnership, and some of the people we particularly have to work with are the 33 boroughs that determine actually what goes on in detail in, in, in London, including the City of London. They control 95% of the road network, uh, the local roads. They control planning applications below quite a high threshold, in which, beyond which the mayor can decide them. And they're essential partners in actually trying to move forward, both in them understanding what we're going to supply in transport terms and can supply, and us understanding what development there'll be in, in individual boroughs. There are other sorts of partnerships, not all of which we've been successful about, and not all of which will come better as a result of the uh, new mayor and his new policies. I think we're set for a rather better relationship with London's local authorities in the future than we've had in the past. Tony himself is doing some work on the city charter, and the, this mayor is perhaps more inclined to, um, to have a, a two-way relationship with the boroughs than the last one was. But there are some other areas where we need to make uh, evidently some progress as well, like health and education, because the story there is much less happy. And indeed, quite a lot of health and education policy might have been good for the health service and education system, but it's been absolutely catastrophic for the demand for transport. Health sites have been moved to places where, which are inaccessible, difficult to serve. Education has created vast movements of kids every September that we couldn't predict and nobody else knows about and which are actually very expensive. We are working on all of that. We're working on those two um, because I'm determined to. We're working on the relationship with the boroughs. And as Simon will have said last month, actually, 
Um, he, he talked, I think, extensively about the document of which the cover's on the right, which is about planning for a better London. That will inevitably lead to a revision of the London plan. And the great news, as far as I'm concerned, is that we look as though we've got a, uh, we've got a timetable which will enable the London plan to be revised and the new mayor's transport strategy to be done together. And that's the way it ought to be. And I think if we do that job properly, we will have cracked something quite good in this city because you hope at the end of it that the spatial plan is built on foundations of, the, of a transport network which is known and the behaviour of it is modelled both in London-wide and, and sub-regionally and you hope the stra transport strategy is reflective, reflective of a spatial plan uh, uh, and both of them are deliverable. And I think if we've done that in this Mayor's term, that alone will be actually a considerable improvement. Now, in terms of making more efficient use of what we've got, there are several things that I can talk about here, um, one of which at least Tony is quite, quite passionate, about, passionate about himself, and I'll get to, as, as, as demonstrated by his text messages at midnight on Saturday night. Before we get there, one thing I do want to say is that um, the, this Mayor is absolutely committed and determined to a complete revolution in cycling. We thought we'd done fairly well to double cycling in eight years on the strategic road network. Boris wants much, much more. He's the Mayor. That's what he's asked for. That's what we're going to deliver. You will, in fact, have seen this morning that we have launched the uh, OJEC notice for uh, the uh, bike hire scheme in central London. We believe that can be successful. We believe, uh, absolutely it can be as successful as Paris. Boris is determined not only to have it in central London but in suburban London as well in due course and we are to deliver it by May 2010 and if that's what he wants that's what we will do. He also wants us to look at much better ways of getting people in uh, radially into town. Uh, I was out with him on my bike, with him on his bike last Friday morning um, on uh, on the A24 coming in from Clapham and we developed on the way some quite good ideas about what we can do to actually build on the critical mass of cycling in London and actually it's good for you apart from anything else um, and actually we, we, we were out and we think we can do it though I think the highway engineers are bothered by Oxford blue cycle lanes but I'm sure that legislation can help with that um, and he also wants to do more about cycling in outer London, bearing in mind so many journeys are very, are very short in outer London. Why wouldn't people bike as a, as a means of doing it? We're equally keen on walking because that's good for you too. It's also free and if we can promote it by good signposting, by improving the urban realm, then... Uh, then, then clearly we ought to do that. And you see, if you go to Bond Street, you can see some evidence in the legible London uh, uh, signs that actually we know, we think we know what we're doing in terms of help, helping people to walk around the crowded city. The thing that Tony texts me about in the middle of the night, usually at weekends, is about managing traffic flow. Boris wants us to do something much better than we've done before and uh, Peter who's sitting in the front row and David Brown and I and others have been racking our brains. We think there are some things we can do. We ha do have a traffic control centre. We do actually have police and PCSAs on the streets. We can deploy them better and actually it would help sometimes if they knew what they were doing before they acted, um, which we need to do something about. We're looking at traffic signals um, to see what else we can get out of them. There is a bit we can get out. Um, it's hard to do. We're going to experiment with some new ideas like counting down uh, the pedestrian phase as, as happens in New York, Dublin and other places where we believe we can get more out of cycle times. 
and particularly Boris's determinants are we that we have to manage street works better what actually is bringing this city to a grinding halt at the moment is nothing is, is, is despite whatever taxi drivers tell you is not actually really what we've done but a quite unprecedented collection of uh, gas and water main renewals and all the other stuff that people do our roads don't wear out they're destroyed by people digging them up and they're digging them up in London in huge quantities for all sorts of reasons as we speak somebody will be start starting work they may not have told us about it it may not be urgent even if they claim it is well, well, it's almost certainly the blokes will knock off by the time I finish this lecture and gone on to dinner and they'll leave a bloody great hole in the road till tomorrow morning and if Peter's people aren't, aren't, don't act with alacrity it will be there for several days before we can fix it. It is a disgrace. Boris now knows what we've got in train in terms of what the legislation allows us to do. Um, we can make it work better but there is a weakness which we've had to tell him about which is that if you find Thames Water £80 actually the foreman can pay that Thames Water doesn't even need to bother the foreman can pay it there's no, there's no penalty that we can uh, that we can take in financial terms which will hurt them and until there is we will never do as well as we should with planning and identifying all of this stuff. What you want is penalties big enough to make it worth their while to dig like fury, fix it, fill the hole in and go away. And actually, if there's one message I'd like to leave you with, it's that one. Um, we still need to do more with the bus network. Um, Boris has got some uh, ideas about route masters and so on and taking off bendy buses. Can't happy to implement them. There's a more serious question with the bus network actually which is that its cost is very high and indeed you'll see if you read our business plan which was also published last week that we've committed ourselves to a further review simply because the levels of subsidy are now at the levels actually not unusual for other cities elsewhere in the world but certainly much larger than they've been for some time and we have to try and um, do something about that. Then, of course, we can expand capacity. And the sort of uh, financial investment that I talked about earlier actually is, produ has produce is producing us an enormous programme of work which will transform, um, not only transform London's transport, not only in, in, in the project which you can see the map of here, but also in the tube system. I told you the tube system was very old. That's one fact you need to know. The second fact you need to know is that it's fuller with people now than it's ever been in its history. And we're rebuilding it at the same time. Tim O'Toole, who manages the underground, likens it to doing knee surgery on a tennis player as they're playing a championship game, or even heart surgery. And it is a bit like that, because actually what you're doing is trying to do in five hours a night what it would really be sensible to close the system down for two years at a time and fix together. And what we're fixing is not just what wore out in the last five years, we're fixing what wore out in the last 30 years. Nobody's sitting in my position before, um, actually much before um, the later years of, of Kylie, has actually sat there and watched the tube being renewed at the rate it should have been renewed since the 1960s. And the result is we've got an enormous backlog um, which we need to fix. But as ever, challenges are opportunities. So not only have we got the backlog to fix, but actually we can do some quite dramatic things in terms of improving tube capacity. At the end of the uh, line upgrades, which um, uh, are in progress now, the Victoria Line, Jubilee Line are in progress. We'll start on the subsurface line shortly and the, and the Northern Line. Whatever you think about the PPP, and I'm quite happy to talk about it if somebody wants to ask afterwards. At the end of that, at the end of the decade leading to 2020, will get a tube with significantly more capacity. And it's particularly important because Crossrail, when you come onto that, 
delivers the most enormous amount of additional capacity, 10% of the total public transport capacity in London. But you don't get any of it until the day it opens. And our passenger numbers are still going up now. This system now has daily numbers of a level that my predecessor would never have imagined. If you told Ralph Bennett, who I worked for 30 years ago, that we'd have had 4 million people on the tube on a normal weekday, he would have laughed, and the management I knew when I first came to tran London Transport would have laughed too. And we're trying to cope with that and do the system up at the same time and get it done because we can't wait for projects like Crossrail to deliver us the capacity. When we get there, of course, Crossrail will be a great thing, and it's absolutely the right thing for London. It's a great tribute to government that it's finally found the will to do it. It's a great tribute to the new mayor that he's embraced it as willingly as the old mayor did, and actually we're getting on with it despite a load of miserable articles constantly predicting that it won't happen. I think it will, and it will result in a huge increase in capacity, and surprisingly, actually, for a project first hatched in the 1940s, it's actually more the right thing to do now than it was when it, when it was first thought out because of Canary Wharf. Um, there is a downside to that. If you look in our business plan, Boris has also dumped some projects. All but one of the projects he's dumped actually had no funding, and I think I would argue rather, rather prejudicially against my former boss, actually never had much chance of funding, certainly not in, not in the economic times we're in now. And I will stoutly defend Boris saying let's not go any further with Cross River Tram, not because it might not be a good scheme to do, but because actually A, we've got our hands full, and B, you would really have to be an optimist to suppose that we'll get any more investment money out when we're trying to do this lot as, as well. But I'm happy to be, uh, to be argued with as ever now. Does this work? The environment. I talked about the necessity of considering the environment. Uh, I'll be quite quick with this because the, the clock is moving on. We have done a lot of work about smarter travel, not to force people to change mode, but to just talk to them and persuade them to change mode where it's easy to do. Actually, it's just telling people how to walk places uh, um, encourages them. There are over 100 pairs of tube stations in London, which are actually quicker to walk between than it is to take the train. I just feel slightly sorry for tourists who go down at Leicester Square taking a tube to Covent Garden because it's quite a long way on the map but it, actually it is quicker to walk and there are quite a lot of other links it's quicker to walk, walk, walk to as well. So we're doing that, we're working, um, we're, we've got a climate change fund to, uh, to actually do a bit of investment ourselves in projects that wouldn't otherwise have a business case. We're taking uh, the Mayor's lead in trying to encourage uh, electric cars and hybrid electric cars. We have the low emission zone designed to reduce vehicle emissions from large vehicles um, and that actually seems to have been very successful. Um, and we are doing what we can with the vehicle fleets we own and influence in terms of, for example, introducing hybrid buses. Hybrid buses are no longer, I think, a technical uh, step into the unknown. I think they're quite practical. I predict by the time we get to 2010 that everything that our contractors buy will be hybrid and actually hybrid will be a perfectly normal method of, uh, of, of propulsion and we're looking at taxis too. And we're looking at energy saving on the tube because we're going back to regenerative braking which was an idea, an old idea in, 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 in order to save the power, the additional power that we're going to need in order to power the extra train as a result of the line upgrades. Um, 
Boris came to power on a manifesto about safety. It wasn't crude. It didn't say you're unsafe on, tran on, on London's transport networks because you're not, actually. What he was talking about was the fear of crime, and actually that is of concern to us because actually so long as you feel unsafe, then actually you're less likely to use the network. That's why I specifically referred to the overground where some of the North London line stations, and particularly the Gospel Oak to Barking line stations, have now got staff on them throughout the hours of operation for the first time in nearly 50 years, and both the patronage and the revenue display the results of that, which is that actually the revenue shoots up a mile, and the patronage goes up as well, because more people travel when they think that their fellow travellers are not likely to be committing uh, grievous bodily harm on the stations. We've now got more than 2,500 uniformed officers around the bus network, around the transport network, more than we've ever had in, 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 in our history. And we have to do more simply because actually people demand the right not only, not only to travel safely but to feel safe when they're travelling. Uh, and actually that's behind Boris's alcohol ban which we've instituted and it's behind the increased police uh, presence that he made a manifesto commitment on which we're delivering. Accessibility is one of those words like integration that means a lot of things to different people. I, I, all I'd say is, is two things. One of which is that accessibility, I think, in my thesis would be there are two, two issues primarily. One is about information. If you don't know what you can do, then you're not likely to do it. And that's not just public transport information. It's information about the road network, about its performance. It's information about how you can do things like bike hire when we get there, like, like car sharing, or like car clubs and so on. We've moved somewhere in that direction and our journey plan is not bad. It could be better with constantly thinking of improvement. But what's in our mind now is that the development of PDAs, the fact that I've got my email box in my pocket, ought to mean that the sort of information you need about every sort of journey in London ought to be just uh, call-upable and accessible. There is a challenge in there, actually, because real-time information particularly you need, you, you need in different ways in different places. If I were going home tonight, I would like to know that the 845 was running from Paddington. You don't need to know whether the number 11s outside are running up to the timetable because we don't tell you what the timetable is. You need to know they're reasonably reliable. We still have quite a lot of work to do in presenting that in the right way to different people in different places at different times. And, and actually, I, I'd like to think we're on it. I think we can do better, but we're on our, on our way. Um, the other sort of accessibility is for, uh, is for disability and people with kids, buggies, luggage and, and all that sort of stuff. There the story is rather partial because we've done well on the buses where the fleet is wholly accessible. That's why I'm not apologetic about getting rid of the old route masters because they weren't and couldn't be accessible. Um, we have done that and the results are there to see which is actually we do have quite frequent wheelchair users and we've given a whole section of London as a new lease of life because they can travel around normally um, as, as people on their own two feet can. The, the bigger conundrum actually is the tube where actually accessibility is really expensive. Individual station schemes can cost anything up to 100 or 150 million and actually though we would like to do it and I know Boris would like to do it, the money is simply not there to achieve it in the short term. 
and we have to be realistic about what we promise. I think that's one of the lessons of the first eight years, which is that an aspiration to do 33 and 50% on the underground is fine, but if you can't see where the money comes from, then you better be pretty careful about how strongly you talk about the aspiration as, about, uh, as against what you talk about um, in, in, in delivery. Um, and then the games, which I will give a piece on its own to, um, one of the characteristics of the Games, apart from the fact that it gets universally bad press coverage because we have such a miserable press in this country, um, is that actually the transport elements have great benefit, have, have great virtues. One virtue is that there's no element of the transport delivery for the Games which isn't needed for legacy thereafter, which is astonishingly good. There's nothing we're going to do which is wasted. It will all be useful for, for the, the subsequent development of, of, of the Games areas. The other astonishing enough is that it's all near enough on time and actually if you look around the Olympic site it's pretty good but what we're doing for the Olympics is actually on time and will be delivered now neither of those are stories you'll ever read in the newspapers because the, the press is so utterly miserable but actually they're both true and actually all the stuff that I could reel off about the DLR, about the capacity enhancements on the North London line um, about uh, some of the legacy in terms of traffic operations that we're going to do about the transport coordination centre that we're building are all good things to, to have as is the aim of getting 100% attendance by public transport, walking and cycling and uh, if Boris uh, is the mayor, as he is, you will see a huge uh, push towards cycling infrastructure because how better to go and see Chris Hoy win another clutch of gold medals than cycling to uh, the velodrome um, and I don't worry about that at night, actually, oddly enough, because I think the Olympic deliverables will come right, and I just feel sorry for people who get, who, who'd have to put up with the press of doing it. And so I'm near the end, really, because uh, you have to stop, and then you have to uh, ask people to consider whether you answered any questions that are worth uh, answering, and whether you've said anything worth saying. Um, you do actually have all of you, and the rest of London too, and indeed the rest of the population if it chooses to access it, have the chance, will have the chance in the next few months more than once to influence transport strategy. This isn't just a personal statement by the Mayor, it's a consultation paper, and actually it invites people to write back and say what they like and what they don't. We will look at that before and as we develop the draft of the Mayor's Transport Strategy alongside, as I've said, the London Plan, and that too will be consulted over. So there will be a number of opportunities for people to actually say what they think about where we should go next, about where that strategy should, uh, should, should go. I hope you've also noted that running through this presentation is, in, is, is, is quite explicitly the political reality. Transport matters for London and its future, and for Londoners, and the mayoralty is a focus, rightly, for both policy aspirations and delivery, and the mayor, quite rightly, is a politician. Um, and I think it's really quite self-evident. I am actually paid to deliver policy, to implement it, though I do give advice. Not all of it was listened to by the last mayor, and I don't expect all of it to be listened to by this one. But it is actually right to reflect that, that this is an important subject in this city, and the opportunity to have an elected mayor who actually has under his direct control a large integrated transport organisation, I think is, is absolutely right. So you elect the mayor on a manifesto and you can judge him politically on what he delivers and transport is his biggest deliverable. Is it perfect? 
Well, no, of course it isn't. There's always improvements you can make. But is it better to be, uh, than being relegated to the too difficult and too expensive box, as we used to be by national government? And the answer to that must be a resounding yes. I wouldn't even bother to come back to Transport for London in 2000 if it had still been a nationalised industry, because I know how they're run. You give them the least money that you can get away with, pray, hope, and wait for the Secretary of State to change, and then move on, and it all gets worse, and that's not happening. Does it depend on having a mayor of vision and with leadership um, and with a wise strategy? Well, actually, unquestionably, but then that's why the mayor's important for the city, that's why the electorate should go and vote, and that's why it needs to choose widely. And I think it's interesting that in the, th in the three elections that we've had so far, um, certainly my opinion would be that actually it has chosen pretty wisely so far, and this mayor shows every sign of grasping this agenda. His decision to chair our board, I think, was absolutely right and actually uh, did demonstrates more clearly than any other action that he understands the position of transport in both what he has to deliver and what he's responsible for politically. And then lastly, does that make mine an easy job? Well, the answer is it doesn't, because actually I'm supposed to just deliver stuff, but um, if you sit where I do, you get politicised uh, most regularly in the minds of the Evening Standard columnists and writers, um, probably quite unfairly so. Um, I challenge anyone, for example, if you read last Wednesday's article, I'll give £1,000 to charity for anybody who can prove I was in favour of the Thames Gateway Bridge, whatever it said in the Evening Standard. Um, but do you have to put up with it? Well, of course you do, because actually, as I've said, transport is a major issue for this city, and it's right that it, has a, that, that, that it is a, a central part of the political consideration of a mayor. And so I would say, actually, at the end of it, we have got a good structure. It's the best one we've ever seen in my working lifetime of 33 years. We should try and make it work as well as we can. Uh, we should actually try and get the Mayor more power, because if we had more power, for example, over the National Railway Network, we could deliver what we've done on the overground everywhere else. And for a lot of people living in South London, I think they'd be very pleased with it. And I also think that the results that I've described so far, very briefly, and what I've described is in store, um, both do and will demonstrate that actually this is a very powerful structure and it's the right one for London. Thank you very much. Right, thanks very much, Peter. Um, right, we've heard about reinvestment in tube and the potential for building crossrail and of course it's worth adding crossrail will uh, meet the revived Thames link, won't it, at Farringham, mm -hmm. yes. which will actually create a north-south line as well. Um, he just talked about the need to cope with London's significant population and, one must hope, in the longer term, renewed employment growth, and also about the way in which Transport for London attempts to bring different kinds of transport and indeed transport and other spheres of government together whilst working in the without question complex institutional and funding landscape uh, that is London um, this is a school of economics and politics I'm sure somebody will have a bright idea for a suggestion of ways of dealing with the utilities who make Peter's life so miserable uh, so any bright ideas now's the time to come forward with them but more generally, any questions? Right, one here, two, 
Um, Commissioner, thank you very much for uh, a most informative and interesting tour of the horizon. Um, Can I, you I, say who you are? Uh, my name is Paul Weistrad. I'm, I'm from New York. And uh, as uh, you know, we have been watching with interest over the past uh, several years the implementation of congestion charging here. And um, uh, it was quite a controversial issue in New York. It was, uh, uh, in fact, didn't even come to a vote. Uh, and was rejected, um, partly, I think, because New Yorkers didn't know whether the priority for congestion pricing was um, uh, revenue production, whether it was mobility, or whether it was sustainability. And um, now I understand that the, uh, the, the most recent expansion of congestion charging is being pulled back, just as New York is reconsidering it once again. And I was wondering if you could tell us a, what were the priorities, or what are the priorities of congestion charging, and B, why it's being uh, retrenched now, or it's being proposed to be retrenched um, after it was uh, expanded. Okay. Um, well, the original intention of the congestion charge in the first mile term was very clearly to reduce congestion. And I think that despite every form of attempt to prove the opposite, actually we can still prove that the original congestion charge has reduced congestion in the original zone. Um, the, uh, the last, in, the, in the second mayoral time, term, the last mayor both extended the area, which was more controversial, to uh, 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 the, the uh, west of uh, Park Lane into Kensington Chelsea, more residential, less, certainly less central business district. Um, and it was a controversial decision when he put it in. Um, in fact, it has reduced congestion a bit, um, but it's, it, it, it was never, uh, it never had the wide, as wide a spread a level of support as the original scheme did. And what's interesting about the controversy, I mean, this mayor, uh, uh, this mayor was elected on a platform of reconsulting about whether the West, Ex the West Extension should stay or go. Um, and uh, we haven't yet uh, told him what the results of the consultation is. So Just tell us. No, no I'm not going to say <laughs> anyway. um, But But the point is that, that, that it was always a more controversial issue because of the nature of the territory into, in, into which you put it. I haven't seen recently many people arguing that the original zone ought to be taken out, and indeed we feel that actually if, we, if, if anybody were suggesting that now, we would be unable to predict what the level of chaos would be simply because the only way that these streetways have got anywhere near being, uh, being tolerable with the, with the circulation of traffic is because of the, the, the amount of traffic that had been reduced originally. I mean, it is true. It, it, it is quite clear you've got to be clear about what it's for. Equally, this, this mayor, when he was campaigning against the last one, got a lot of support because the last mayor had then proposed a variation to charge a lot more for cars with high CO2 emissions. Clearly, people felt, uh, and if, the, if Boris were here, he'd tell you so, that that was unfair and it's not what people expected of the original charge. We would maintain now, as we have all along, that the intention of the original scheme was to reduce congestion, and that's what it's done. The other thing to say, though, I mean, we watched what's happening in New York with great interest, and I think part of the rejection is not only about people's uncertainty, but about the way, as in every city in the world, that municipal politics works at various levels. Um, but um, 
you also have to look at our scheme. It's very coarse. When we put it in in 2003, many people thought you'd never be able to do it at all because it was such a tall order. We did it, but we did it with a very clunky system which consumes a lot of money in, uh, in, in, in cost and still does. And I think one of the, uh, one of the uh, ways in which we, we will look for the future and certainly debate in the Mayor's Transport Strategy is that we don't need to have such a clunky system now. Technology's moved on. We've proved that you can have a, a, a blunt area charge. Wouldn't it be much better if it could be applied a little less coarsely to both time, distance and place? And if it did, wouldn't it be much more acceptable? And the other question on that, which is a question and not a statement, lest it gets written up in the evening standard, is that central London is not the only place with congestion, of course. Actually, if you go into some parts of outer London, there's shocking congestion, and seven days a week. And actually, you could well imagine that a, fle a more flexible system might actually cure some ills that actually this one was never going to do. And do you think if the consultation over the Western extension led to a more flexible system that might be then potentially rolled out elsewhere in the city? Well actually interestingly that th this mayor has consistently said, though not very loudly, but he has said and he said it in public and it's been recorded that he's not against road user charging um, which I take to mean that actually we shouldn't give up on looking at how you can make such systems work more flexibly than the one we've got which is very blunt you either pay it or you don't because you've either driven into the area or you haven't and are you still trialling sort of uh, more advanced systems yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and we will make, in any event we'll make some changes in 2009 10 with the contract changing ok there's a question uh, there and then a yeah, I, gentleman there and then a third uh, Ivan Tennant from the Bartlett School of Architecture. Um, I was listening to Steve Norris talk about um, creating destinations within London and improving uh, places as destinations. And he was talking a lot about an orthodoxy that he believed existed under the previous mayor, um, that the car had to go, an anti-car uh, orthodoxy. Um, I just wondered if you had a view on whether there was such an orthodoxy and whether Steve Norris should be supported in trying to address the balance. I think he was looking for a more balanced attitude uh, to the car. Well, Steve Norris is a member of my board, so I support everything that all our board members say. <laughs> and they except, too, no doubt. Uh, yeah, I wish they would. Um, but actually, except when they're so stupid, you can't defend them. Um, that, but that isn't uh, daft, and, and uh, I, I will put it a different way, which is that we weren't asked to give the attention to traffic circulation or journeys that you could only make by car, particularly in outer London, in the last administration, as we have been in this one. And actually that makes a difference, because um, we've all got a limited time at work, and actually what you do is act on the priorities that you're, you're asked to give, and clearly there are some things we can do. Uh, the present mayor has made it clear to me, and I think the organisation has listened, that actually he doesn't want to punish people for using cars when there's no other me method by which you can travel. What he wants to do is to encourage them to use other methods where, where, the, where, where there are other alternatives. And, and we will reflect that. I mean, our, our, the attention that I talked about to dealing with traffic flow, to looking at traffic circulation, to looking again at traffic signalisation and the management of traffic is testimony to that. You know, if you like, the, I, I'd say the emphasis was different rather than portraying it politically as being anti-car. You know, the, pre, the, the previous mayor 
was intent in pedestrianising the north side of Trafalgar Square. There can't be anybody in the room, or indeed in London, who hasn't realised that if you take out that road space in the north side of Trafalgar Square, you make it tighter in the rest of it. And the operation of the roundabout on the south side proves that on a minute-by-minute basis. So it's about what you're asked to do and the priorities. And I, and, and, and I think that, as ever, I suppose I would because I'm in charge, but I, I would think that we could be successful in trying to do some of that. And actually, if we can bring some relief to the lives of people in outer London who need to use cars because public transport, almost by definition, is less uh, uniformly available in a, in a low-density environment, then we'll have carried out what the, the Mayor's wishes and actually fulfil one of his manifesto commitments. What kind of outer London orbital transport improvements might you have in mind as a kind of early well, thought? As it happens, on Saturday we're doubling the frequency of a bus route that runs um, on express basis between Croydon and Heathrow. We've done some before market research. We're going to find out what happens when you double it and see who uses it. I mean, there are some questions to be answered because typical outer London journeys are not between the centres of Croydon and the centre of um, Uxbridge. They're between somewhere near Uxbridge and somewhere near Croydon. And there remains a, a question about how well you'll ever manage that. Which I think actually, Tony, goes back to the thing that, that you've heard Steve Norris talk about, which is not punishing people. I will never run a public transport system for somebody who lives in, uh, who lives on the edge of Greater London, south of Croydon, and works at Stockley Park. We will never service that journey by public transport effectively. If you want, if you're going to do it, and you can, and, and you believe you can do it economically, you're going to have to drive because there's no other way of doing it effectively. Otherwise, you get a bus in the Croydon, train to Central London. You know, it, it, it just doesn't work. But we can't. That that element of that market that we can do better at. Let's see what we can do. If we double the X26 and all we get is a doubling of old age pensioners going shopping in Kingston, well, it's not the right answer because they could go shopping in Croydon. Sure, nobody will report that. Um, well, uh, so I don't, I don't mind if you do. Gentlemen there, and then um, somebody there. Yeah. Uh, Richard Bramwell from the Sociology Department here. Um, in relation to your comments on social inclusion, um, you talked about um, walking and cycling being good for you. Um, I'm interested in why classical music's played in um, London Underground picket books. Um, is that because it's good for us, or what was the purpose of of the decision? Yeah. Well, we we found we found that people who spit at the staff and break windows don't like um, Brahms, basically. <laughs> so if you play Brahms loud enough, they go somewhere else and break somebody else's windows. And I, you may think I'm being facetious, but actually, what I'm telling you is entirely correct. Um, we're not we're not sort of I mean you know we're not sort of hopeless do-gooders actually. Um, it, 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 it has actually been shown by people who run shopping malls to have a very desirable effect on, on uh, groups of people who congregate in public spaces, and that's why we do it. But, but uh, I'll take you up on the healthy walking and cycling, because I, I don't think there either we're trying to stick it down people's throats as a, you know, you must do this. One of the interesting things is that we've, we've done a lot of work in the borough of Sutton in terms of encouraging walking and cycling. And one of the bodies that's most interested in working with us is the PCT, 
because A, PCTs are supposed to spend, spend quite a lot of money on health prevention and find it quite difficult to do. But as they've told my staff, actually the cost of coronary care is massive. Every coronary, every coronary failure costs huge amounts of money in the hospital system. So if you can just encourage people to take a bit of exercise, which is easy and good for them, actually you can save the health service potentially quite large amounts of money. Now we're not going to do that by getting doctors to write prescriptions for bicycles. That, you know, that, that, that sounds too stupid to be true. But Probably a government policy. Yeah, but, but encouraging people to do things which are good for them is not actually not, not, not a bad idea. And, you know, if any of you are cyclists on, reg on a regular basis, you feel better for it. I had a terrible week last week, but an hour and a half on the bike last Friday morning with the mayor cheered me up for the weekend, got a bit of air in there. You know, actually, it's not so stupid. And, and providing we're sensible about it and argue it in the right way and persuade people, well, why shouldn't you, actually? Why, why should a public, why, why should an organisation like mine be consigned to the box of dull public transport people when there's so many evident solutions for so much that can be connected together in, in the city? I think the Paris Metro pumped perfume into the um, some metro stations at one point. I think if we tried that. Now, hang on, gentlemen there. I want to come back to the maps that you showed showing how the, uh, employment growth is going to be linear along the Thames and population growth is going to be throughout the whole of Greater London and that's clearly going to result in a lot more commuting and a lot more congestion and one of the ways to uh, deal with that would be to try and make the, tra the, uh, the, the, the jobs map match up more with the uh, residential map and I know that's more of a, a planning question than a, than a transport question, but is this being considered? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right, and I hope that I managed to say somehow that actually the new mayor's policy in respect of suburban town centres is likely to be a rather wider policy than the old one, because actually I think what you'll find in the development of the London Plan, and I'm sure Simon Milton must have talked about this, uh, last month is that is that uh, the mayor does want to see, and we will look at what you can do to stimulate employment in places other than central London, the city, and, and Canary Wharf. Now, what I did say, I hope, is that you have to be realistic. I'm not expecting, for example, that to damage the the case for Crossrail because I think it's inconceivable that international banks will want to locate in Barnet or Bromley. They want to go where all the other international banks are. The question is if you've got a different planning policy for some big outer London centres and there are some opportunities coming there's some huge developments Cricklewood for example, the redevelopment of the railway land Stratford after the 2012 games, you, you know what, what, what could you do there and what would the, the effect of that be and my, my, my suspicion is that if, you, if, if, you, if I were to give this in, in a couple of years time and I took those maps out of what was then being done for the London Plan of the Development of the Mayor's Transport Strategy that there would be more job growth in outer London and maybe a bit less in, 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 the, in, the, in the central sort of east-west east spine but I think, I, I think at the same time as you've got to be um, as you've got to be uh, innovative and uh, th thinking new thoughts, you've actually got to reflect on what actually the limitations of that are. I mean, I don't expect Canary Wharf 
to constrain their development since they know that Crossrail is coming. And my guess would be, as we go through the economic cycles, that they'll only build what they think they can fill up, and actually they will build quite a lot, and it will fill up because of the agglomeration effect. There, uh, yes, and then here. And then there, right? Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Zoe Jankel, and I'm an LSE alumnus, and also, more importantly, perhaps a cyclist. Um, you spoke about TfL's potential as a body that, that can integrate transport within London, and also about the um, cycle network expansion and the bus network expansion. I just wondered, do you have specific plans in place to integrate both the cycle and the bus expansions? Because I think at the moment, from a cyclist point of view, it seems that they would be in direct conflict with each other. Um. Yeah, we do. I'm not sure that's true, actually. I think that I, I won't, you know, uh, I do, I don't think much of many of the people who write in the media, but I do read it. And one of the interesting things is that um, there's been a lot of comment about cycle safety in London. But one of the things, apart from the Mayor's views on articulated buses, um, is that actually not much of it has been directed at car, uh, cycle versus bus conflict. Uh, and we do have to be practical because it actually if we were planning with the benefit of Hausmann's Boulevards or the sort of space that you get in many American cities, you could have lanes for everything and there would be no conflict. We haven't got space for anything on some of these roads. Go to Leytonstone High Road and tell me how you fit anything into it, including the traffic and the, and the pedestrians. So we, we, we have to work with what we've got and I'm not sure necessarily we, 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 Boris and I and some others were out on Friday looking at the potential for getting the right sort of radial routes into central London as a further step in promoting cycling. And neither David Brown nor I thought, and he runs a bus network and, and deals with street matters as well, neither of us thought that if you did the sorts of things that we're secretly planning and will be revealed with a great flourish next spring, that actually you would be damaging the prospects of cycling by um, by, by, by doing things with buses or, the, or, or, or vice versa. We actually still think there are some things we can do. I mean, the, the philosophy that you have to adopt largely on a road network of this antiquity and with this space and with this pressure is that you've got to find the best ways possible of managing people living together. If we could segregate people, we would if we had the space, but actually we can't because we don't. And therefore, one of the tests is to what extent can you give people power over the space that they occupy, to what extent can we li get people to live together in lanes and, and you know, the mayors try motorcycles in bus lanes. That's hugely controversial. We'll see what happens. Motorcyclists think it's good for them. Cyclists don't think it's good for them. But I, I think actually, as a straighter answer to your question, we will be able to do something. And actually, by the way, if by itself all we do is increase the number of people cycling, one of the things that we do know is that, is that increased numbers give you more safety. And if that actually has some marginal effect both on bus, buses and indeed on other traffic, well, actually, the mayor's prepared to tolerate that, and if he is, so am I. Right, now, there's... Fred. And then, right here. I, I'm Fred Manson, and something over ten years ago, we were sitting down looking at an area where I worked in Southwark, in Peckham, and we're absolutely convinced that the way to transform Peckham was to better, have better transport. It shows on your map of where there's poverty in London that's been there for a very long time. 
and there's a lot of people who uh, have a real difficulty getting jobs. We worked out a system which was the only way we could think of doing it, which was a, a cross river tram. Yep. And it's been worked on for 10 years. It's shown tremendous social benefits. Uh, yes, these are difficult times, but it does seem a bit disappointing that a mayor can make a decision, knowing that it's a political area, but still, that is going to, to not come up with an alternative benefit for those people who've lived in Peckin and need something to, to work their way out. And it would be better to have a long-term understanding of what Transport for London is, have some way of suggesting how difficulties are going to be resolved rather than simply cancelling schemes. To, to, to which I would say we, we recognise, I recognise and he does, the sort of deprivation that you're talking about and the need, the, the, the need to deal with it. What, what, what he said, and which um, actually I agree with, is that it's misleading, though, to talk about schemes whilst having no realistic prospect either of funding them now or perhaps at any other time. And I think that one of the things that we've proved with tram schemes, we've proved it actually to my complete satisfaction on the West London tram, is that conceptually they sound brilliant, but actually practically inserting inserting street tramways onto the streets of one of the crowded, most crowded, oldest cities in the world is really actually quite difficult to do. And that doesn't mean that North Peckham and Southwark's uh, deprivation problem uh, shouldn't be addressed. It should. And I said to Boris that actually one of the issues is to actually find other ways of dealing with access to jobs, because there are some other ways. Quite a lot of the rest of London gets by with bus services and actually will have to continue to do so generally for which there was never a tram scheme um, but I, I agree with him that actually fundamentally it's, it's wrong to have stuff in your, in your long term portfolio which will never rise to the, to the level at which it will be funded because there will always be better schemes and in fact I think that the, that the essential element of the CRT which is the north-south link from the Elephant and Castle to uh, to Euston, which is the backbone on which the rest of it was was, was uh, projected in economic and social terms, we do actually have a potentially better solution for. And, and actually, if that moves the issue from me to the LDA, which is another one of the bodies for which the Mayor is responsible and for which there's considerable funding, then actually that, that regrettably may, may, may have to happen. But I don't certainly want to employ people at the cost of several million pounds a year developing schemes that we don't believe will ever get funded at all, and that's, I think, the reality. There used to be an old favourite called the Croxley Link that was always in everything that TfL published. Did that survive the cull? Well, it can still be done if somebody can find it. So it's still in, is it? Million, Nobody can find it, and it won't mm. get built. That's my been, there, been there for decades. Yeah, yeah. right. Chap here. Can I wait for the? Um... Hi, my name is Stephen Ilhan, I'm a sixth form student in South London. Um, picking up on your point about um, uh, you wanted to take over the South London Rail Network, I was wondering what benefits you feel that would bring to London, and how TfL uh, would integrate that. And furthering on to that point. Uh, before that would happen, how you are going to pressurise ATOC into uh, rolling out Oyster cards into uh, the South London Rail Network? Oh, big question. Lots yeah. of work on this. It's a good, yeah, it is a good question. Well, to answer the last piece first, we are, I hope, near the end of a very tortuous commercial process in getting the train operating companies to join with us and accept Oyster Pay as you go. Um, and I won't be too rude about them now because we'd like, to, we'd like them finally to bring their small bottle of drink to the party and we can all have fun when we've got there. Um, 
that on the wider benefit, uh, on the wider benefits, I mean, actually, we we are, you know, if you go back to the previous question, actually, the radial routes in from Peckham and Camberwell to Central London have an enormous peak bus service, and one of the reasons they do is that you, is that many people in Peckham don't wake up in the morning and think, I need to go to Central London, I'll go to Peckham Rye Station. The service is is sporadic. It's not regular, it doesn't look like a tube station, it won't accept oyster cards, and by the way, if you come back after 6 o'clock at night, there's nobody on the station except somebody might steal all your money. So there's quite a lot, actually, that can be done. We've got quite some way with the South Central franchise where, actually, the department, to give it great credit, has accepted some of the propositions that we're talking about in terms of frequent uh, uh, services about station staffing and the like. And we would like to get a bit further, but I think one of the arguments is that, actually, you should be able to regard any railway station in London um, within, you know, some, some outer, outer limits, clearly, as having a service frequently enough not to need a timetable, as accepting Oyster, as being staffed from the time it opens to the time it shuts, and giving you the sort of service that people assume the underground will give you, but never assume the National Railway Network will give you. And if we can get to that stage, who's in charge of it and how it's branded, well, might, that may not matter so much. We're certainly not being critical of the department of the Southern franchise because there's some big, actually quite big, improvements in service levels. But even now, that's the first railway franchise in London, apart from the overground, which will be adjusted so the last and first trains are at the same time as the underground, which is a sort of elementary thing that actually, if you call yourself a Londoner, you should expect in Peckham just as easily as you'd expect it in Harrow. Right, that clock's two minutes fast. Could you take one yeah, small I'll do question? One, one short shoot question. Um, yeah, I saw you first, in fairness. Right in the very... Yes, uh, it'd be impossible to get a microphone, but I did see you first. Hi, uh, my name's Robin Phillips from uh, the University of Westminster. Um, I'm a student there. Um, it seems every time the um, underground drivers go on strike, they hold London to ransom. Um, just wondering whether there's any sort of likelihood in the near future that the underground could be automated? Automated, automated. Yes. automated. Wasn't the Victoria line ready for automation when it opened in 1967? Uh, yeah, the bloke at the front mm. presses a button and the trains go. Well, here are, here are a number of maybe not completely compatible but quick remarks, one of which is they have a lot of ballots but they don't often go on strike. <laughs> Um, as an observation, can you rem remember when the tube drivers last went on strike? Anybody remember? It's actually quite a long time ago, but they do have a lot of ballots and it's a, and it's a pain in the neck. Um, and um, we try, we try, actually try very hard through management to manage it so that people don't feel that they need to have a strike ballot and a strike every time something's wrong in industrial relations. You can run automatic railways, there's no doubt about it. It becomes more difficult in the circumstances of deep level tubes. And I think that our view at the moment certainly is that we would face quite an uphill struggle with an unbelieving public if you put both jam 850 people into a deep level tube and then send it off in the tunnels without any of our staff there to help anybody in case it stops as... as because actually on a railway, safety always means that you stop. And I think that that's quite a long jump, actually, to take. Now, whether we need 
and, and I think to be fair to us actually that the drivers are a lot more passenger and customer friendly than they used to be they make announcements, they tell you what's going on they tell you what the weather is sometimes they tell you they're having a bad time which is all good part of the customer service but aren't you a bit reassured that there's somebody on the front of the train I know on July the 7th there are a lot of people who are very reassured that we have people in uniforms all around the place and they were very grateful for it. And I somehow think that actually it might, I, the technology is certainly there and in fact one of the things we are thinking of doing is at the ends of the journey is reversing the trains automatically because then there's nobody on them. And if they get stuck somebody can put on an orange jacket and turn the current off and go and, go and sort the train out. You might think rather more about the managerial practicality of emptying trains in those circumstances if there's nobody on board. And that, that, I would argue, is something which actually we need to think about very carefully before we go there. Okay, Peter. Um, I'd like to uh, thank you on all our behalf. It's been a um, fascinating canter around a subject which uh, I often say that... Uh, in London, in Britain as a whole, you know, you, you can usually keep a conversation going for a while talking about the weather or if all for perhaps the royal family even, but in London we also have the merit of public transport to keep us, to give us all something to chatter about. And, um, but to hear from uh, the Transport Commissioner, uh, both uh, his and the Mayor's plans for the future of transport in London, uh, many and hear about some of the obstacles to it, and then to have the opportunity to address um, a serious public official directly. Um, thank you very much for doing that, and uh, hope you'll come back again at some future point. Yeah. Thank you very much, Good Peter fun. Hendy. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. Perfect.